This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A child suffering from the flu died in Larimer County last week. If the coroner determines influenza was the cause, it would be the second pediatric flu fatality this season in Colorado. Overall, more than 2,300 people in the state have been hospitalized with flu this season. Why is it so bad? Dr. Rachel Herlihy is the state epidemiologist, and I realize there are some fundamental things I don't understand about flu, like why is there a season? I mean, what happens to it? And what do people mean when they say stomach flu? Dr. Herlihy, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Colorado isn't alone in this. I understand every state but Hawaii has seen an increase in flu cases. Uh, What makes this season so bad? Yeah, so we certainly are experiencing a unique influenza season here in Colorado. Colorado, like much of the country, has really seen an earlier-than-usual season and really a much more severe-than-usual season. And when you say severe, does that mean the type of flu is more virulent? Does it mean more people are getting it? What does severe mean? Yeah, it's really a combination of things. It really can... We can really talk about how much influenza we're seeing, how severe the cases we're seeing are, if they're resulting in hospitalization or death, and how widespread those cases might be. Is it across the state or is it in pockets of the state? And what is the picture here? Yeah, so we really are seeing widespread influenza in Colorado and across the U.S. Um, We are certainly seeing more severe illness. We're seeing higher rates of hospitalization than typical. Um, To put it in perspective, we're seeing roughly double the number of hospitalizations due to influenza that we would typically see for this time of year. Double? Double, My my goodness. Uh, And as you say, flu seems to have hit a bit earlier. Flu season is roughly October through May. Uh, How early did you see cases? So we were actually seeing a small number of cases before official influenza season started. So in late September, we were actually seeing a number of cases here. Is it possible that you would see cases then beyond May? That is, could it be extended in the other direction? I'd say the first thing to say about influenza is that it's unpredictable. So it's really hard to know if we're going to see cases and for how long. So it's tough to say from year to year how many cases we're going to see, how long the flu season might be. Your numbers are updated weekly. You've gotten a fresh report. What stands out? Is it tapering off or what? Yeah, so so we do see a bit of a plateau at this point. Um, and this is really the first week that I'm confident saying that our number of cases is plateauing. We really haven't seen the dramatic decrease in the number of cases that we're seeing, um, but certainly a plateau, which I think is good news. Um, one of the things to know is that, you know, sometimes we will see a peak of influenza due to one type of influenza virus. And then later on, we might see an increase in another type of influenza virus. So oh, so it's like a one-two hit. It can be. So it's really difficult to, to say what um, February and March is going to have in store for us. I always thought of flu as like one strain per year, but it's just not that clear cut. Correct. So there's a, typically multiple strains of influenza circulating. There's influenza A strains and influenza B strains. But there is typically from one year to the next one strain that does predominate. And here okay. in Colorado and across the country right now, that is the H3N2 strain. Uh, why is there flu season? Where does flu go in the summer? Yeah, so flu, like a number of communicable diseases, is seasonal in that typically we see influenza during the winter season, and the summer southern hemisphere has the exact opposite season of us. So really, when we are not having flu, the southern hemisphere is, and vice versa. Okay, so it's related to weather, I'm guessing? Yeah, so it's really not well understood. There's thoughts about humidity, temperature that might contribute to why we see seasonality. Uh, Does this mean that the flu vaccine 
was not a good match for the strains of flu that are circulating if we see this many people this deeply affected. Yeah, so there's a couple of things that go into the term match. So it can be that the so influenza viruses um, do undergo a lot of genetic mutation. So they can readily change um, during the course of a season from season to season. And so that's like an arms race. You're trying to keep the vaccine up with the changing virus. Correct. And because it takes a while to manufacture the influenza vaccine, we can sometimes be a little behind the game with what might be circulating. So in years when we don't have a great match, it's often because the strain that is circulating has changed a little bit from the strain that the vaccine that was started with manufacturing of the vaccine. This year is actually a little bit different. We do think there is a good match. There hasn't been a substantial amount of change in the virus that's circulating. But one of the things that we're seeing this year is something called egg adapted changes in that the the virus that went in to make the vaccine during the manufacturing process actually did undergo some genetic modifications, which made it a little bit different by the time it actually went into the vaccine. Vaccine is made in eggs. Correct. So most vaccine in the U.S. is made in eggs. There is a small amount of vaccine that is made in a more typical cell culture. Okay. And what I think I hear you saying is in that process, there were issues. In that process, there were some genetic changes that occurred in the H3N2 virus that resulted in something called egg-adapted changes. That's not necessarily the case for for all influenza virus that's circulating. Some of them do continue to be a good match, but that's if there is... Um, when we finally get the numbers about vaccine effectiveness this year, if there isn't um, as great of effectiveness as we want to see, that might be one of the reasons contributing this year. Okay. Uh, what is stomach, vir- uh, stomach flu? I hear people say, I've got the stomach flu. And I'm thinking, does, does that exist? Or did you just eat something bad? Is it different from any other sort of flu? Yeah. So influenza, true influenza is really a respiratory illness. That's going to be fever, cough, sore throat, headache, fever, chills. Um, But stomach flu is really a gastrointestinal infection. That's going to cause vomiting and diarrhea. Oftentimes that's due to a virus called norovirus, though there are other viruses that can also cause stomach flu. But it's not stomach flu is not a medical term. You know, it's a term that's used informally. I would Uh say it's not necessarily a term that's used in the medical community, but it is a pretty widely used term. It is confusing, right, because it suggests that it might be the same virus that's just causing different symptoms. But it's a very different virus than what causes influenza. Why isn't there a universal flu shot? Yeah, so it comes back to what I was talking about earlier with those genetic modifications that um, take place in influenza vaccine and influenza virus. So the virus... um, really changes from season to season, and even during the season, some genetic modifications occur. And so um, because of that, we have to create a new influenza vaccine each year to try and keep up with those genetic changes and to make sure that our immune system is able to recognize the vaccine and the virus as the same. Got it. Is it too late to get a flu shot? Absolutely not. So at this point, um, we are, I think, not even halfway through our influenza season. Um, We do often see cases into May. Um, And as I mentioned earlier, we sometimes see one peak followed by a second peak of a different type of influenza virus. And so it's certainly not too early. Any misunderstandings about flu you want to clear up here before we go? Maybe things people do wrong? Yeah. So I think one common misconception 
conception about the influenza vaccine in particular is that it can cause influenza. And that's not true. There's not live virus in that vaccine. Um, One of the things that you might notice when you receive the vaccine is that it does stimulate your immune system. You might have some mild symptoms because of that, but you can't get influenza from the influenza vaccine. You point to the fact that getting a flu vaccine is not just a decision for yourself and your own health, but for the community. The, The term of herd immunity comes up in this. Sure. So so certainly one important reason to get the influenza vaccine is to protect yourself. But there's also individuals, um, especially very young children, less than six months of age, who are too young to receive the vaccine. And so you really want to be receiving the vaccine to protect those individuals. Another important population to try and protect is our older population. Individuals over the age of 65 are particularly vulnerable to influenza. And so we want to try and surround them with vaccinated individuals. Thanks so much for being with us. How have you, have you stayed healthy? by the way. I have stayed healthy. You have? Okay. I hope that continues to be the case. (laughs) Thank you very much. Dr. Rachel Hurley is Colorado's state epidemiologist, and we talked about a particularly vicious flu season in Colorado and across the country. It's sometimes hard to believe the stories you hear about wars in other countries until you see them up close. Chris Hondras helped millions of people see what wars in Africa and the Middle East did to those who lived there. Hondros is the name of a new film about his life, made by his childhood friend, a fellow journalist named Greg Campbell, who lives in Denver. And Greg, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. You've just announced this film will be available soon on iTunes and other services, also this summer on Netflix. Uh, The film is so many things at once. Uh, It's about what it takes to be a war photographer. It's also really about the wars themselves. Why did you decide not to make a traditional biopic, but focus so much on the people and places that Chris documented? That's a great question. Um, Terrific place to start because Chris, for those of us who knew him well, um, you know, he didn't really put himself in the limelight. He was not the kind of sort of stereotypical person you would think of who would come back and then regale all of his friends and uh, listeners nearby with war stories at the end of a bar stool. He really focused on putting the people who were impacted by the events that he covered front and center. His sort of overriding mission was to find the humanity that sort of com- that connected the people that, that he saw who were suffering through the events uh, that he was covering with the people that were going to be seeing the images uh, back home. Um, you know, sort of as you said at the top, trying to create that kind of connection so that people can understand that war really is, you know, um, far more visceral and, uh, and uh, you know, touching in, in, you know, a real human way than it is than you generally see on uh, the evening news or the cable news. I love the way you started this film out. Uh, a bunch of guns are going off. Chris is ducking around, trying to stay out of the way, click, click, clicking with his camera, and his cell phone rings. Hello, Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello, Chris. Uh, okay. Things are fine. Things are fine. Uh, let me, let me, give me a call back in about half an hour. Things are fine. Things are fine. Let me give you a call back in a half an hour, he says. I mean, that calm under pressure, was that just a normal situation for Chris Hondros to be 
caught in the crossfire trying to do his job? Absolutely. You know, when, when we found that, when we dug that little clip out of, I think it was nine and a half hours of uh, harrowing footage from the war in Liberia in 2003, I knew immediately that that is where we were going to start the film because that really speaks to who he was. Um, anybody who's been in a tense situation with him in the field will will be the first to tell you that Chris just had this uh, otherworldly calmness to him. And it was an ability to uh, really compartmentalize the dynamic things that were sort of happening around him and focus on the story that was unfolding. I think that's really what made him as good of a photographer as he was, was that sort of otherworldly ability to just really focus on on the task at hand. Yeah, and it often meant that he was incredibly close to the pictures that he took. We'll talk more about that in a bit, but you've known him you since childhood. Um, was it always obvious that he'd end up in a line of work like this? I think so. Chris and I met when we were 14 years old in English class in Fayetteville, North Carolina in high school. And, you know, we, we fell into stride really quickly with one another because I think we just shared sort of an innate curiosity about the world beyond the confines of our small town where we met and grew up. And in college, we quickly gravitated towards journalism. I was a print reporter. He um, specialized, obviously, in photography. And, um, you know, when, you, when you're first getting into uh, a career like journalism, there's, there's the internship route where you, you know, you write the obituaries and you shoot the high school football games. And then there's the leaping ahead of it all and just um, picking up and selling everything and going off to a war zone that kind of catapults you to into a whole nother realm of of journalism. And um, Chris and I took that step in our in our uh, late 20s uh, in covering the wars in the Balkans. And it was Bosnia and Kosovo at first. And I think when Chris saw what he was capable of doing as a photojournalist in those situations, then he he never looked back. You sold everything and just jumped into this life. I didn't. I uh, I was actually working, believe it or not, at the Boulder Weekly up and uh, give a little shout out to the guys up in Boulder um, when I first made my first foreign uh, reporting trip. And it was to Bosnia in 1996. And uh, so I was, a, you know, it was me and the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and the Boulder Weekly running around uh, with the reunification of Sarajevo in 1996. And when I reported back to Chris about the experience and, you know, the uh, sort of the, that satisfaction of the curiosity that we both kind of shared throughout our our you know, early careers, um, he was immediately like, well, you know, the next conflict that comes up, I'm, I'm going to be there. I want in. It is obvious early on in the film, and so I'm not, I'm not spoiling it here, that Chris Hondros died. Uh, in 2011, he was working in Libya during the Arab Spring and got caught up in a fight between Gaddafi's forces and the rebels. You were in Libya on that trip reporting together for the first time, I think, in several years, and you went home before him. Uh, what was the story you wanted to get from Libya? You know, it was, I mean, Libya was, was the latest in uh, af- of several sort of Arab Spring uprisings. And it was the one that devolved um, first into a, into a really brutal civil war. And it had been a really closed society in many ways. Yeah, not a lot of people knew about what it was like inside Libya. And, you know, with, with on, the, on the heels of Tunisia and the revolution in Egypt, you know, Libya was the next sort of domino to fall. And 
it, you know, Chris was a, a consummate journalist, a photojournalist in particular, and this was just where the story was, you know, to see the, I mean, the Gaddafi regime had been in power for 40 plus years, and to see it crumbling uh, on the tailwind, uh, we've at least it's what it seemed like at the time of this, you know, very positive um, move in the Arab Spring in that, in that region was, was clearly a story that he was going to cover. How did you find out that Chris Huntress had died? Uh, I, I'd come back, as you said, uh, about a week before his death, and um, I'd emailed with him that morning just to check in on him because he was going into a city that was surrounded on all sides by Gaddafi forces. It was under siege. It was the city of Misrata. And the only way in or out of that city was by boat. And so after a 20-plus hour journey from Benghazi to Misrata, uh, I just wanted to check in with him and find out, you know, what the situation was like to see that you know, he, was, he was staying safe. And his reply was that, you know, this was the, this was where the story was, you know, the civilians, the people that he really cared about covering, you know, the impacts of the of the conflict on them were the ones suffering, you know, a, a terrible t- paying a terrible price. And so he and a small group of other journalists who arrived on the boat a, a few days before um, were were uh, sending out some harrowing uh, imagery. And I, after I'd, I'd emailed him this one particular morning on April um, April 20th, uh, 2011, um, I got a Twitter alert uh, that basically said that he, he had died alongside uh, Tim Hetherington, who was a British filmmaker, um, who, who died. They, they died in the same incident. Um, and that's obviously a really cold splash of water. You know, it's a real slap in the face to get from something as anonymous as Twitter. Um so that just kind of took over, obviously, my day from that point when I was trying to confirm this unconfirmed report. Well, and to have been in contact with him uh, so so soon before his death, um, had he at all considered not going to the Arab Spring? Like, do you know if that thought ever, had ever entered his mind or that was just what he was destined to do? Uh, you know, I mean, interestingly, he, he was... Uh, he was uh, going to be married um, in a, in a few months from 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 the time of his death, and he had uh, he had big plans on the horizon. But um, I think, and and he had uh, he wasn't the first photojournalist from the Getty News Agency uh, to go in. There was uh, it was such a such a kind of kinetic situation that one of the journalists who had photojournalists who had been in the in the region before him had been captured by Gaddafi forces and um when he was released after after several you know difficult days um you know Chris sort of insisted on going and taking his place because the story was so important um and he was not going to be much longer in in the country i believe he was aiming to come back a, approximately a week after the incident that killed him um but yeah he you know spent his entire career specializing in the work that he did. So there was no question that he was going to, he was going to go cover that. And yet you do get the sense in this film that he, he had a thirst for a a little bit of a different life, maybe in the second chapter, a life uh, with a a little bit more domesticity, perhaps. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm speaking with Denver filmmaker Greg Campbell about his new film, Hondros. It is about his lifelong friend, the war photographer, Chris Hondros, who died in 2011. And I want to hear from Chris Andros himself in the film describing the the kind of photographer that he was. The problem with war photography is that there's absolutely no way to do it from a distance. You have to be close. You can't can't do it from your hotel. You can't do it from across the street or across the bridge. You have to be there. 
It's really no substitute for that. So you have to figure out ways to get in the midst of things, no matter what's happening, and you have to suspend your reason sometimes to do that. And I think that's where that reputation comes from. His reputation. <laughs> yeah, right off the bat, you know, we wanted, that's very early in the film, um, and he's asked a question by the interviewer um, about the reputation that conflict photographers have for being the craziest amongst all the journalists who cover conflict. Yeah. And, uh, you know, one of the things, and I'm glad you picked that clip because that was that was Chris answering the question that I think a lot of people bring up when they consider this film or when they've just seen it is, you know, um, a lot of people say this is, wasn't what I was expecting, you know, from this film. In other words, I think they were expecting uh, Chris himself to be almost like a reckless kind of cowboy because that's what they have. That's the vision that people have of, you know, war photographers in their head. And although he clearly took, you know, very many risks in order to come back with the stunning imagery that he did, uh, you, you wouldn't ever know it talking to him. And it's, again, that sort of like that calm under fire that, you know, he, he truly understood that in order to do the job as well as he needed to and do the job that he, he was called to do, you have to put yourself in certain situations. He seemed to have a knack for knowing where the next pivot point would be in a conflict or where the next conflict might even arise. Um, right after the 9-11 attacks, he tells his editor at Getty, I'm headed to Pakistan. Years later, of course, that would be pivotal in, in finding Osama bin Laden. He was in Pakistan. And his editor said he always was one step ahead. Yeah. And I mean, again, that just sort of speaks to who he is. Um, you know, as a, he, was, he was extraordinarily intelligent. Um, and I think, you know, the journalist part of photojournalist often gets overlooked oh. about how important it is to do your research, to know where you're going. I, again, early in the film, one of his editors says, you know, you never had to explain to Chris why he was where he was. He always kind of knew the importance of the story. He knew what his, he wanted his photography to be about. And that that sort of preparation, that knowledge, I think, really puts him in a position to know when something is happening in front of him that this is going to be the picture over here that's going to tell the story, this little slice of it. Maybe not all this, you know, noise and chaos that's going on over over here, but yeah, this little slice of it is going to tell the story that is going to resonate with people. Well, speaking of this, this little slice of a conflict, I mean, I, I can't help but think of his iconic photo. Uh, it's of an Iraqi girl whose family has just been killed by U.S. forces at a checkpoint. And the photo is devastating. The girl's hands and face are bloody. She's screaming in agony. And next to her, you just see the boots and guns of a U.S. soldier. Um, and yet later, Chris also managed to tell the other side of the story. I want to say that. Uh, but th this photo is just incredibly searing. It is. It's, um, I mean, it's a jaw-dropping photograph that when it was released on the wire against the wishes uh, of the U.S. military, I should actually say, um, it was used around the world in all types of media, and it caused an immediate uproar. And one of the things that I learned from doing this film and taking a really deep dive into Chris's body of work uh, is that 
he had almost practiced this motif. It's, it's, it's such an interesting thing to go back and see from the very beginning of his career in Kosovo through every foreign military uh, excursion that he covered. He always focused on young children. They were the ones in sharp focus. And there was usually an anonymous military figure standing in the foreground or in the background. And the expressions that were caught on children's faces just really spoke to a generation caught up in war, growing up in this uncertainty, this militaristic uncertainty. And it naturally makes the the viewer of the photograph ask, what will become of that child? You know? That's right. That's right. It was a real, you know, humanistic way of, of covering conflict. And I think when he was um, presented with that devastating instant in Talifar, Iraq, in 2005, that's what gave him the ability to, because he he, he knew what he was doing, he practiced it. It was a skill that he had perfected. And you can see this photo at our website, CPR.org, which you say is is indicative of a, of a motif. And that might make you think, well, gosh, if he's only training his lens on, on children, he's not telling the whole story, right? What about the soldiers? And he was able to tell the story of the soldiers involved in that conflict. How did he do that? Yeah, again, you know, a lot of the a lot of the success of of the film and a lot of the success of Chris's career just comes out of the person who he was. You know, he never he always wanted to um, connect with people on all sides. You know, and again, as as a journalist, sort of like taking that kind of high level, you know, objective approach to the things that he saw. He was there with the soldiers during that. Incident. Right, he was in the embed. He was in embed, and the soldiers fired on the vehicle in which the parents were killed because they assumed that it was going to explode and kill them. They thought they were under attack, and later Chris said that he too thought the car was going to explode. So this incident really paints kind of like um, a, a montage of just how many different shades of gray there are. And when Chris connected again with one of the soldiers, um, it was during. Uh, a story that he was doing about post-traumatic stress. And, you know, the soldier that we highlighted in the film who was involved in firing on the car actually lives here in Denver. And we were, um, you know, he, he Chris came out to do a story about PTSD here at the local VA hospital. And uh, that's when I met the soldier that we highlighted in the film. And, you know, from from there, the story just, you could you could see the the various nuances of the story. You get kind of all different perspectives. That the soldier is very disturbed, you can tell, by the incident in Iraq. And he he's even wondering whether his bullet was the fatal one that, that killed him, any number of the members of the families, um, and that that haunts him in the years following. Uh, you interviewed Chris Hondros' mother for the film. She grew up in Germany, I, I think, during World War II. Yeah. How do you think that influenced his career choice? I mean, was he was he fascinated by war? I wouldn't say fascinated. I would say that he grew up um, from an early age knowing what the true impacts were, you know, that there was a real human cost to war. I think a lot of us, I'm speaking for myself as well, um, you know, we grow up with a Hollywood version of what war is like, that, you know, explosions are big, slow motion sort of affairs, and it gives you plenty of time to duck. And if you're wounded, uh, you can get up and brush it off. And death is somewhat sanitized. And Chris's mother from an early age uh, would tell him stories of her experiences uh, living in living in Eastern Germany and under occupation by the Nazis and the Russians and um she made it pretty clear to him that there was a, a human a human cost to it that's, that's very, very tangible. And I believe that his mom knew 
having known knowing what the cost of war is as as sort of uh, directly as his mom did, uh, she was able to understand his motivations better and better than maybe other people's parents who go cover those type of things. Hmm. We are talking about the late war photographer Chris Hondras with his very good friend Greg Campbell of Denver, who's made a film about him called Hondras. And uh, in making war very personal, in getting very close to subjects, I can't help but think of an image he took of a soldier in Liberia who appears to be jumping for joy that he's hit his target. Uh, Chris also showed truckloads of child soldiers, for instance. In making the film, did you learn anything about how he was able to get so close? Were there tricks of the trade, if you will, that allowed him to capture these kinds of images? Uh, uh, I mean, I think the the number one is is doing, first of all, doing your research and knowing where to be. And you know, having the, it's sort of like, in my opinion, I'll, I'll speak for my own uh, experiences, but it seems like it's an escalating step up of uh, degrees of courage that are that are needed as you get closer and closer to where the action is happening. And courage, perhaps insanity, might be another word for <laughs> or a it, suspension or of reason, suspension uh, of as reason, Chris would yeah. put it in the film. Um, and you know, he, I think one of the things we wanted to emphasize was that he didn't um, he didn't take unnecessary risks. There was a there was a moment when the 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 photo that you're you're referring to where it's almost World War II like, you know, is a bridge, it's contested, there's one fighting, one group fighting on one side, another group fighting on the other, and they're each just sort of like running into the maw. And they invited Chris to follow along and said, you know, if you want some good pictures, it's on the bridge. And that was where the light bulb went off for him and said, you know, if I'm going to create a, an image that is going to have an impact, it is going to be amidst these soldiers fighting. Um, and so he followed them out there ended up with this um, amazing photograph that was one of the first that really put him kind of on the map. Uh, and again, that was that one ran all over the world. I was actually um, re- editing a story. He, he, wrote, he was also a writer that a lot of people don't realize. He had written a, a small story about the battle on that bridge when I was the editor of the Fort Collins Weekly up in Fort Collins. And I actually saw that photo come across the wire live. And it's just jaw- jaw-dropping. And... Um, You know, as Chris would say, it's just a matter of you need to be where the action is happening in order to get those images. Chris made a deep connection with that soldier, which you learn about in this film, Hondros. Uh, To wrap up, uh, you you got some help, I understand, from two very famous names in making this film, Jake Gyllenhaal and Jamie Lee Curtis. What was their involvement? Um, You know, interestingly, when we were... Well, first of all, the involvement comes from, again, Chris Hondros. I, I owe it all to him because if it weren't for the humanity that he displayed in the work that he did, uh, it wouldn't have caught Jamie Lee Curtis's eye. She was impacted by the photo we were discussing earlier uh, the, of the little Iraqi girl who lost her parents at the checkpoint. And as we were you know, embarking on our, uh, our own search for this little girl, um, we learned that Jamie Lee Curtis had reached out because uh, of the of, of the impact that the that the photo had on her she's also a photographer herself and when i reached out to her she uh, immediately um got on board this is before we had filmed a single frame and she just really wanted she's been our mentor and our our assistant you know kind of throughout this entire this entire project and jake gyllenhaal is her godson who um oh, I didn't saw know. some early scenes of the film and wanted to get involved with his production company so um they've been ex- excellent partners uh so glad to have them on board um they brought our financing partner bold films into it 
Thanks so much. It's it's a gripping production. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. Greg Campbell of Denver directed Hondros about his friend, the late photographer Chris Hondros. He died covering the war in Libya in 2011. It was just announced that this film will be available in March on iTunes, Amazon, Xbox, and in July on Netflix. You can see some of Chris Hondros' pictures at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. When 30-year-old Len Nesifer tells his friends he loves to climb and ski, they often ask, why? Those are white people sports. Nesifer is Navajo and runs Natives Outdoors based in Denver. His mission is to teach outdoor lovers about Native cultures and to get more American Indians into outdoor sports. And he joins us today as the country's largest outdoor retail trade show kicks off in Denver. Len, welcome to the program. Nice to be here. Why is your passion for skiing and climbing sometimes viewed negatively by your own community, do you think? Um, You know, there's a historical history of of climbing um, on the Navajo Nation that has been, um, you know, fraught with a number of people coming onto the res and breaking tribal laws. And so I basically inherited a history that I didn't know much about growing up. And so that is to say that climbers were seen as. Uh, not being respectful of perhaps uh, well, places like Shiprock on the exactly. Navajo Nation, right? Exactly. So people were climbing some of these sacred sites when they were told not to. And um, now climbing's banned on the res. And so, uh, you know, me as a climber, it's kind of an interesting situation um, where I love the sport, but I can't necessarily take it home. Um, and so now, you know, living in Colorado, um, I found outdoor recreation as a way to connect with my cultural identity and also just having fun outdoors. Well, how did you discover climbing if there had been views among your peers that it was, you know, perhaps off limits? Right. I think it was partially just a curiosity of, well, so many people are doing it and it looks like fun. I might as well try it. And part of what I've been doing through my company, Natives Outdoors, is trying to redefine that experience through um, both the gear that we make and then what we do in terms of the outdoor experience. Well, let's talk more about that. Do you think your Navajo upbringing changes how you behave in the outdoors? Oh, definitely. Um, You know, I think one of the things that I've noticed is that uh, when I go outdoors, I try to maintain a, a relationship of reciprocity with the outdoors. So anytime I go out and have an experience, I try to give something back, either, you know, that's giving back to your local trail crew or different sorts of nonprofits that maintain areas. Because one of the things that I've seen here in Colorado is people go outdoors, they extract an, ex- extract an experience from the outdoors and don't necessarily give back to ensure that these places are stewarded for people that come after them. So you see yourself as helping maintain the nature that you are enjoying. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I always remember that we're just uh, another chapter in a thousand years of history of maintaining these areas. I was just in the San Luis Valley and um, there's archaeological sites there from 13,000 years ago. And, you know, at any point in the 13,000 year history, people could have easily overextended and hyperextended their environment. So, you know, there are climbers who talk about um, 
conquering a mountain, right? right. Bagging a 14er. This idea that a 14er would fit in a bag or something. <laughs> uh, I wonder what you make of that kind of language. You know, I, I think it's a relic of, of the history of the West, of, of the original uh, um, settlers that came and, and sort of was exploring this land and conquering the land. And, you know, that's the history that we're, um, that we live with now. But as a native person, it's like, I never think about bagging a 14 or conquering a mountain. It's just being there. Um, what do you think it would take to bring more American Indians into the outdoor community? Is, is that, I, I presume that's a goal for you. Yeah, definitely. And I think part of it is it's been, I look at it in three areas. One is the social realm of just creating the imagery, making it normalized, um, Which you try to do with your apparel, for Exactly. Instance. And um, the third element is looking at some of the... Or second element is looking at the um, financial barriers to outdoor access, which exists for many communities, not just American Indians, um, but just having the right gear, being able to get outdoors. And then the third is policy. You know, here in the state of Colorado, um, you know, there are um, options such as GOCO funding and different things that can allow, um, increased access. GOCO is lottery funded. Exactly. Exactly. And so for tribes, you know, this is an opportunity to connect into trail systems, to get funding that they as Colorado citizens are also eligible for. So that kind of connectivity you think is important, but, Mm -hmm. but when you talk about the, the economic barriers to some of these sports, uh, you know, it, it's hard to go hiking without a good pair of hiking shoes. Right. This can cost a hundred bucks or more. Right. And certainly climbing, if you need uh, ropes and things like that, gets expensive. What, what, what's the way around that? There's so many needs right. on you reservations. Know, the climbing, I imagine, isn't at the top of people's list. It's definitely not. And I think, um, you know, for a lot of um, uh, older folks in our communities, they're wondering how they pass on cultural traditions and language to their to their kids and right now um you know historically we would get outdoors through ceremonial practices through agricultural practices through ranching and farming those occupations are gone and now we're trying to look at how do we get young people outdoors and outdoor like recreation is a vehicle to simply then have this end goal of supporting um cultural revitalization and language revitalization mm. you see these is all connected mm-hmm. What was the initial response to Natives Outdoors, which I think began really as an Instagram account, It did, yeah. I mean, it was overwhelmingly uh, positive. I mean, it was a lot of folks that were trying to find a community around their outdoor experience. And then one of the things that I've also been doing is I've been working with a lot of pro athletes on issues around Bears Ears, and the the Instagram account has been the hub for that. So um, I think it's just kind of giving a different narrative and a different approach to the outdoor experience. You will attend the Outdoor Retailer and Snow Show opening today. But later this summer, you'll be a part of a summit of tribal leaders at the Outdoor Retailer Summer Show. What do you think will be discussed there? What's the most pressing issue? So we're we're partnering with the Colorado Outdoor Recreation Industry Office and the Colorado Commission on Indian Affairs of Indian Affairs, and we're um, convening a summit to um, uh, begin the discussion between the state of Colorado, um, the outdoor industry of Colorado, and tribes about how we for that can, connectivity we're talking about, right, huh? and how we can partner on managing these these public lands issues. And, you know, Bears Ears was the impetus for this. And with the show moving from Utah because of public lands issues, this is Colorado really taking the lead in showing that we can work with tribes as partners. Bears Ears is the national monument in neighboring Utah that was uh, just recently shrunk by the the Trump administration, contains lands and artifacts important to many tribes. Right. Len, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you. Len Nesifer is owner of 
Natives Outdoors in Denver, and he joins us as the outdoor retailer and snow show opens in the city uh, this week. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Attorney General Jeff Sessions is testing the will of the cannabis industry. He didn't have to do much to insert some chaos. With a one-page memo, he removed certain protections for people doing business in legal recreational marijuana. On the surface, not much has changed, but CPR business reporter Ben Marcus says the pain is on the money side of things. It's never been easy running a bank that caters to the cannabis industry. Just ask Sundy Seafree. She manages Safe Harbor Private Banking, a credit union. Waiting for the shoe to drop every day for three years. You, you cannot be weak going into this. You have to have a good stomach and a lot of fortitude to stay on and get this job done. That fortitude was recently tested when Sessions released a memo that essentially said his U.S. attorneys could prosecute marijuana business owners at will. And more importantly for banks and investors, prosecutors could go after assets and collateral tied to the businesses. Seafree says it wasn't lost on her that they also could go after individuals at the bank. Yeah, that was an interesting morning. I think some banks and credit unions did have that as a trigger to exit. We did not. Because she believes the industry needs the support of banks to prevent large amounts of cash from hitting the street. It's just too dangerous. It helps that Colorado's U.S. attorney said he had no plans to change enforcement. Still, most don't share that attitude. There's no doubt that Jeff Sessions intended to and, in fact, did destabilize the cannabis industry. That's Sean McAllister, a Denver marijuana attorney. He says he had a multi-million dollar investment deal for a California marijuana business fall through because of the Sessions memo. You know, no one is jumping ship, um, but, you know, looky-loos might run away, but those of us that are already in this are here to stay. But McAllister's a true believer in the marijuana movement, an early advocate. And those looky-loo private investors, they have other places to park their money that don't need the aggravation or the risk. That's a problem because private money is vital for industry expansion. McAllister gets fired up about the hypocrisy of the IRS accepting marijuana tax money and auditing marijuana stores, while those same businesses aren't allowed to get a traditional loan from a bank. To say cannabis money isn't banked is ridiculous. There is billions of dollars of cannabis cannabis money washing through the banking system every year, and the federal government and the Congress continues to stick its head in the sand and pretend that it's not a problem and there is no solution. He says there is a solution, like removing marijuana from the Controlled Substances Act, but that would take an act of Congress. Don Childers, the head of the Colorado Bankers Association, estimates about 20 banks are dealing with the cannabis industry in the state, but most are quiet about it. The Controlled Substances Act says you may not deal in these substances or the proceeds therefrom. I mean, it that's just about as clear as you can get it. That, with the latest move by Sessions, and he expects some banks will stop working with the industry altogether. An industry that sold $1 billion in cannabis last year in Colorado. Sessions' memo clearly hasn't stopped activity at Incredibles, a marijuana edibles kitchen in Denver. 
A woman in a hairnet pumps chocolate into plastic candy bar molds. And this might look like any artisanal chocolate assembly line, except for the addition of one extra ingredient. Bob Esquino is the owner of that warehouse. To Esquino, Sessions' memo was just another example of the crazy he's lived with since the beginning. Tomorrow there's going to be another problem that's going to potentially shut down the entire industry. <laughs> Reminds me what a it, lot of risk to live under. It's like I said, we keep our blinders on. Like many cannabis businesses, Esquino has obtained a bank account, but he still must go through private investors to drum up money. And he knows that the considerable risk sessions inserted onto the industry will make the terms more onerous. Already, investors recognize their leverage and are asking for more than interest. They want an ownership stake. It's hard to sell equity now as we're still, you know, in triple-digit growth mode. Um, it, it, it's hard to sell equity knowing that it's going to be worth double what it's worth now next year. Esquino hopes that the short-term pain caused by Sessions' memo has a long-term payoff. That, if anything, it will prompt Congress to finally deal with the problem and legitimize the industry. I'm Ben Marcus, CPR News. Housing prices have made Denver the second least affordable city in the country for teachers. Based on average salaries, only about 1% of teachers here can afford to buy a home. But there's an experiment to change that. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine has that story. Teachers have a lot on their plates these days. Being in a classroom all day is stressful. But the stress doesn't end when the bell rings. Jared Montgomery is a manager with the Denver School of Science and Technology, or DSST, a network of public charter schools. We talk to teachers every day who their primary concern is the rising cost of housing in the city. Caitlin Schwartz was born and raised in Denver. She's a high school Spanish teacher. After 10 years away, a year and a half ago, she moved back. To astronomical rents. The question of how to afford living in the city she teaches in is a daunting one, not just for her. I know so many teachers that are putting in 60, 70 hour weeks, planning their lessons, grading, being in school, working with students. And so... When your only option to be able to really afford to live is to get a second job in a job that's already time and a half. Her voice trails off. There aren't enough hours in the day. A tidal wave of a problem lies ahead for DSST and other Denver schools, where teachers make salaries in the forty to $60,000 range. More than 70% of DSST teachers are under 35. Most are single, so sharing rent with roommates can work. But Caitlin Schwartz just got married. And so that's a big thing we've been thinking about is like, okay, if we're going to buy a house, it can't be a one-bedroom condo if we want to have kids. She's not alone. A survey last year found 30% of staff want to buy a home within three to five years. So the network began researching options, and they heard about a company called Landed. But we are a social mission real estate brokerage, which is not very common. That's Uh, Alex Lofton, one of its co-founders. It's after school at DSST's Southwest Denver campus. About 15 teachers want to hear how Landed can help them buy a home. Here's how it works. Homebuyers put up 10% of the down payment. Landed puts up the other half. When you put 20% down, the bank does not require you to pay mortgage insurance. Landed's Emily Eshman says that saves about $200 to $350 each month. And she explains Landed's down payment isn't a loan. It's a shared investment. 
So if the home goes up in value when it's sold, Landed gets 25% of the appreciation. If the value goes down, Landed assumes 25% of the loss. The idea intrigues school administrator Kelly Herrick. She and her fiancé had given up looking for a home. Up until hearing about Landed, we have actually been actively considering moving to Cleveland, Ohio, which is where my family is from because housing prices are so much more affordable. For Denver native and teacher Nate Reven, Landed's plan... Could be really nice math in terms of the next steps in my life. His entire family is here, and he says he wants to keep giving back to the community he grew up in. Landed's Alex Lofton says for teachers, the three- to five-year career point is key, a time when many quit. So that's the crucial time we're trying to help with, is that time when people are deciding, well, I can stay a teacher and live in this more precarious situation or switch jobs and have more security. And we want to make sure people feel like they can stay in the job, in education, and have the security. Landed's roots are in the Bay Area, where it's tapped foundation investments to cover its portion of home down payments. So far, it's helped 200 California teachers into homes. DSST's Jared Montgomery knows the pilot program is just one piece of the puzzle. It appeals mainly to those who've managed to save for part of a down payment. But along with retaining teachers, it could help with something else. It's absolutely a recruiting tool. He says it's getting harder to draw teachers to Denver. Landed's Alex Lofton says when it comes to the housing crisis, it's easy to be pessimistic. He's not. There are a lot of folks, not just us, government leaders and nonprofit organizations that really want to see new ideas and new solutions and are working towards them. And so I think we can be really hopeful that there's just as many people working on the problem as the problem is big. He's already thinking bigger. If DSST's pilot is successful, he'd like to launch with $5 million to extend the program to all Denver public school teachers. I'm Jenny Brendine, Colorado Public Radio News. Remember that Colorado Matters is a podcast, and you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.